mantras last year and it's my mantra this year is own something more than an opinion. Everybody got an opinion <laughs> of what's happening in the community. I don't want to hear your opinion. I want to see it with my eyes. Show me where you felt this way about something and then you went out and did something to it. Show me where you bought a house and you could have rented out for 1500 but you rented out for 1300 on Section 8. Show me where you and somebody put some capital together and developed the affordable housing community and you could have did a bill to rent and sold it to a large developer. Welcome to House Rich, the real estate show. We talk to average people that have done above average things in real estate. Today on the show, we have Tyrone McDaniel, owner of Houston Vintage Homes, Houston's premier urban and design, design and build construction firm. So he's going to talk about um, a lot of things, talk about his background, talk about gentrification, talk about how to how to build a home in the first place. He talks about, you know, they build uh, nice homes in the, in the hood, basically. It's kind of what it says when you check out his Instagram uh, bio. So we're going to talk about all sorts of things from, you know, from a dirt lot to how the home gets there uh, all the way in the end. So um, thanks for hopping on the uh, podcast, the real estate show. Can you introduce yourself to the uh, folks around? Yeah, no, I think your uh, introduction was pretty well. My name is Taron McDaniel from Houston, Texas. Um, uh, we own uh, a design build firm, uh, Houston Vintage Homes, as well as a uh, Urban Vintage Designs, which is our design uh, and development leg of our business. And um you know, outside of those as my jobs, if you will, you know, we buy and invest in residential real estate as a, you know, wealth creation vehicle. Okay, cool, cool. Appreciate it. So we're kind of talking before uh, in the kind of like the pre pregame about your, your background. So um, I just want to get into, into your background a little bit, because like, like, like you were kind of saying before we started, you know, folks see you um, go to Instagram, you see you in homes, you see yourself doing walkthroughs. And we see like the I don't know if you call yourself the finished product now, but we see kind of um a very <laughs> polished presentation of of what's going on now but how, how'd you even get to this point well, how'd you get into real estate uh to begin with great question and thanks for asking you know um so initially my entry was a friend of mine one of my best friends to this day actually was what they call an account executive he worked for a lender and that lender focused on getting uh what at this time there was a thing called subprime lending so this was for people who had credit scores of 620 or lower. Now I'm predating myself and kind of, <laughs> you know, you can see the grays here. So I've been around a couple of moons. So in that day and time, there were subprime lenders that focused on doing loans for people who had lower credit scores. And he worked for a company that lent to that demographic. Long story short, he always had a mission or vision of opening a mortgage company. And he shared it with me one day we were talking. And I didn't know anything about mortgages, but the epiphany I got driving home was if I can understand a little bit more about finance than what I already know, now I could eventually buy, build, or sell, and invest, which that was always kind of something that was in my heart that I wanted to, you know, become a real estate investor, own homes, build them, develop them, things of that nature. But, you know, I didn't go to college. Well, I went to college, went there for a semester or two did two semesters of college. So I quituated, didn't graduate. So All I right. didn't have a more of a, a scholastic background or something like that. So I was looking for a way to kind of carve out a path for myself. When that opportunity presented itself, I, you know, took it full steam and we actually started a mortgage company. Cool. Just, just, just curious, did you, did you um, um, decide to not to finish college? To, to start the business or was it like other circumstances? And it no, kind of I, I wish it was such a beautiful story where I was in college <laughs> and my homeboy said, hey, let's start a mortgage company. But long story short, you know, I went to Southern University, came home, went to TSU for a semester. And I only went to college, quite frankly, because no one in my family had went. Okay. So for me, I knew I never went to college with the understanding I'm going to graduate. I went with the understanding I'm going to go, I'm going to I came, I went, and I saw, you know what I mean? All right, all right. I had a great time. Um, and looking back, you know, obviously there was there were some aspects of I wish I really would have had a different mentality about it. But the reality of the matter is I understood my family's financial situation. I knew my mom couldn't afford it, uh, which is why I went from Southern, came back home, started working. I worked in high school, so I, I was in co-op. So I was always used to being self-sufficient and providing okay. for myself. And so going to college, having to rely on my mom to send me money, stuff of that nature, you know, I was like, dude, I got to get back to the crib and make something happen. Now, my dad was an entrepreneur. So I, I grew up in an environment where 
I had someone, someone close to me. So I always knew I was going to chart my path in entrepreneurship. It wasn't until later in life, I figured out it was going to be real estate. And so even when I made that particular transition, it was at a point in my life to where financially things weren't connecting. And actually I was living with my buddy at the time when he started talking about this mortgage uh, business uh, concept. And so I was like, one, this makes sense too. I don't really have anything to lose. And so in literally in the living room of his uh, apartment here in a, a Southwest Houston, we created a company called Mortgage Outlet and built that from just some in his, his living room to some that eventually was doing loans all over the country. Oh, okay. Awesome, man. And just the time frame, were, were you, um, you know, what, what, what kind of years? The reason I'm asking because were you part of like that 2008, 2010 kind of sure. um, big show so, situation? you know, most people, you know, I take pride in, in saying that, you know, I was around back then. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, um, you know, I entered real estate. So I'm 48 years old. So I, okay. I entered real estate and literally we started doing loans in 2000. So okay. by the time 2009 came, you know, uh, a lot of things had transpired in our life, but definitely was around for that time. And we can get into that more um, based on the course of the podcast. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, just curious. Um, I mean, I, I was not a lender um, back then, but, you know, my, my perspective is from watching the movie, The Big Short. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, not, not, not that you were doing that stuff, but like how, sure. how, when I say wild was it, but I mean, it was just, if you got a heartbeat, like you can get a loan, sure. is that kind of how it was? Here, let, let, let's go here. Let me ask you this question. As a lender yourself, what is the least credit score that you guys can secure funding for? You know, all things being equal. You yeah, know. so, so, um, as far as overlays, non-FHA. Um, so say it again. Non-FHA, where you're getting into DU automated approval and it's real subject, real subjective. Yeah, yeah. So conventional, um, we'll say six twenty, but typically like a six thirty, six forty. Yeah, exactly. About six forty, and you said Overland, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm saying um, I wasn't gonna say not 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 counting overlays like lender overlays. Oh, overlays. Excuse me. Okay, cool beans. So you know, I can recall being a lender in pre-2008, 2009 in the crash, man. And I, when I knew that the bottom was going to drop is, so when I cut my teeth in, in the industry, you had to have at least a 620 to get a no money down uh, loan. That means okay. it's a hundred percent loan and they even gave you three to a 6% seller concession. So we would have people buy a house and literally leave closing with a check because we had the seller pay for all their closing costs. So now they got their earnest money back. So you go buy a $150,000, $200,000 house and leave closing with a check for $1,500, $2,000. It was crazy, right? Mm -hmm. So we went from a 620 credit score to a 580, down to okay. a 550, 560. And I remember right before the market imploded, dude, there were, there were lenders that were doing credit, that were doing 100% loans for 500 with a 520, 500 to 520 credit score. Yes. And I remember thinking to myself and not really knowing a lot, but having been around a couple of years, I was like, dude, this is crazy. Like yeah. they're giving a person with a sub 580 credit score, hundred yeah. percent long. So the difference, what I always tell people who say, I'm gonna wait for the crash to happen. So on and so forth. I say, no, you're not. If you can't buy an environment where people are doing where they're excited, everybody's excited by real estate. You're not going to buy in a crash. Mm -hmm. And I saw a crash, unlike anything up to this point that we've experienced, with, you know, obviously the uh, through 2008, 2009. But yeah, back then, like, dude, we were getting 100% uh, loans approved with 540, 560 credit scores. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That. That's. That. That's. That's wild. Especially at zero percent down. Like. That's, right. Like no money down. Like yeah. you literally don't have a down payment, and you're just covering closing costs. Uh, in many cases. So yeah, it was. It was a different world. That's why one of the things I talk about when I tell people, you got to understand the dynamics of the lending market. Today we're in a. It's. It's harder today than it's ever been to get qualified for a residential mortgage. Mm -hmm. The lending criteria is so stringent that, you know, um, it, it's just quite, it's just more difficult. It just is what it is. The credit score requirements, the level of scrutiny, the technology they have to underwrite the loans, it's way different than it was back in like, you know, the GFC, the global financial crisis. So it's a totally different market today versus back then. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, and so how did you transition? So after the, um, the mortgage business, I guess, what, what made you get out the mortgage industry? 
Sure. So a couple of things. Number one, having a smart wife okay. or partner or spouse or what have you. You know, my wife used to always say, listen, you should focus more on the real estate side than doing loans, number one. The second thing is, for me, loans were a means to an end. It was a means for me to understand the financing uh, side of real estate. So it was never going to be a long-term thing for me. It was just learning, getting in, learning how what I call deal structure. You know, deal structure is understanding all the moving pieces that are associated with doing a deal, whether that's buying your home, buying a lot, designing a home and building it, buying a two, three acres, getting it subdivided, approved. So like this deal structure component and everything boils down to the money. If you don't have the money, it doesn't matter how elaborate or how detailed the vision is. So for me, I got into mortgages with the understanding of I'm going to get in this and learn the financing component to this. And then I'm going to continue to build my skill set. So even though I, my wife at the time, um, who's still, a, she's a broker today, but she had a real estate license back then. We both got both licensed. So I was a loan officer, became a real estate agent. So she's a real estate agent that became a loan officer okay. so that as a business and how we operated, we could both fully understand both sides of the real estate transaction. Okay. There's no shortage of people that understand the financing, but don't understand the agency side. Yeah, There's yeah. no shortage of people that likewise understand agency, but don't understand the financing. And to me, that was odd. You're, you and I are both drinking beverages. If we pour the beverage on ourselves, we can't separate that act from getting wet. They go hand in hand. Yeah. But most people didn't understand, most loan officers didn't understand what happened on agency side. Most agency people or real estate agents didn't understand the loan officer side. So, you know, I, I learned financing. Then I started agency. And while we were doing that, we started investing because again, our my whole vision was to get to building, developing, and investing. Okay. And so um, I guess that'll segue. So maybe, I don't know if it segues or not, but so how did you um, transition from realtor life to um, kind of open up your, your firm? Or I don't know if it went directly to there. How'd you, sure. how'd you get there? Well, see, it's, you know, the word that um, I've associated with this, uh, my journey particularly is serendipity. And so it's basically these different acts or events that all lead up to a bigger picture. So now looking back, I can articulate the story as if I had this big dream or vision right. in, in place. But the reality of the matter is I was just doing what made sense to me. What made sense is, okay, I understand finance. Let me go understand all the realtor stuff, okay. right? How do, and let me give you a, a more detailed answer. What be, becoming an agent taught me is it taught me how to understand my avatar and how to see real estate, not from my mind as an investor or builder, but how to see it through the mind or the lens of the buyer who's going to live there. Okay. Why? Because I had to understand what they're telling me they want, then go out here and find it in a database and then show it to them. And out of potential, potentially hundreds of properties, find one that made sense for them. Mm -hmm. So loans, becoming a loan officer taught me the financing side, becoming a real estate agent taught me how to understand the needs of today's buyer, uh, what home buyers are looking at, which all of this helped me become a better investor because, you know, one of the things I told a friend of mine is, you know, I don't design properties for me. I design properties for the avatar, the market that I'm serving, mm -hmm. but I only have that mindset because I used to work with a, you know, I was an agent and I sold properties or put people in lease properties or whatever that had nothing to do with how I live, what I could afford or vice versa, but it had everything to do with what met their needs. And so with that understanding, it really helped me. Cool. Thank you. And just uh, you talk about what an actual avatar is, just for folks that don't understand that, that concept. You know, I know that's a, a really cool phraseology, but avatar quite simply in, in my understanding and how we apply it to what we do on a daily basis is truly understanding who your customer is, how they think, what their needs are, and what products they're looking for in the marketplace that are going to serve those needs. When you have a comprehensive view of what that is, that's considered your avatar. This is the market or the person or the needs that you're serving in a comprehensive manner. Oh, okay. Thank you. Um, and so kind of go back to the previous question. So um, how, how did you actually get to the point where it's like, hey, I want to start designing and building homes like did you kind of like build a home on your own like how'd you get to that yeah that so you know so we started buying houses and you know and one of my goals was to invest and do business in the neighborhood I grew up in and other neighborhoods like it here in inner city Houston so I grew up in the hood 
commonly associated as Fifth Ward. Um, there are several wards when Houston was, you know, created in 1857. They broke it down into four wards. When it grew, they added a fifth ward. That was the neighborhood I was from. So I, I had an affinity for my neighborhoods and other inner city communities like it. So this kind of started to guide my investing. So, you know, initially we would look for deals anywhere. Mm-hmm. And over time, I, I, as we, you know, were able to attain a little bit more success and move from only focusing on how much money we could make to how could we make more impact, I started to tap into what I call more of what my, what I'm called to do. And I always, even before I got into real estate, I always had a vision and a dream of doing cool stuff in my neighborhood. Like as early as 18, 19, 20, like I could recognize that, okay, when these people come in and provide housing, it's different than what I would do if I could build a house for someone or rent a house to them. I do this in my house. So as I learned more, we started to make investments in things of that nature. And as that kind of continued to grow, we started to, I, at at a point in my life, I said, you know what, I'm going to spend, you know, the next foreseeable years focusing on my community and others like it. And so um, how I started to get into design is because I had in my mind a vision of what I wanted to create and I would sketch it you know, cause I'm not an architect or mm-hmm. I'd sketch down what I want and I give it to an architect or a designer and have them put on paper in AutoCAD or Revit what I design. And after doing that a few times, I'm like, why am I paying somebody to articulate my thoughts? Let me take the Henry Ford philosophy. I don't, I don't have an architectural degree, but I'm gonna go hire our architect to work for me and now create my own, cause the architect isn't doing the thinking for me, nor yeah. is the designer. I know my avatar. I know the person. I'm from this area. I know the people that are in this area. So there's no one more connected to the market I'm serving than someone like myself. So why pay someone to interpret this when I can create an infrastructure to do it for myself? So as after we started doing, you know, properties and I'm continuing to pay, you know, a few grand to take our visions and make it uh, manifest, I said, you know what? At a certain point, I'm going to create a, a vertically integrated company that encompasses, we can take the idea, put, turn it into a set of plans, and then execute it. And so that was the next matriculation. It was learn the financing side, learn the agency side. Now, start to learn investing. Then let's start to learn the building space. Once we have all four of those, we can create a vertical and create a company that you can come in with an idea, leave with a set of keys, and six to 12 months, whatever it takes to build uh, the project you have in mind. Okay, th- thank you. Um, and can you, you talk about the, this may be a long answer, can you talk about the process of, um, so there's a, a lot there with, you know, some grass or maybe some dirt to to an actual home being built. Like how did the, are you, you buying the individual lots? Like how does that, how does that process work from sure. a dirt lot to so, a house? Most certainly. There are a couple, so strategically what we do, so yes, we will find a lot in an area. So the first thing I believe in is studying an area. Studying an area means going online and doing all the stuff you can do on Google to get demographics, statistics, things of that nature. But then getting in your car and burning some gas, driving the neighborhood, drive it during the week, 536 o'clock to get an idea of who, you know, who the people are. Driving on a Saturday and a Sunday so you can get an understanding of when they're not at work, how do they live as a lifestyle? And based on that, you're going to start to learn some things. Go, you know, I believe in walking for dollars. So I don't invest in any area that I wouldn't walk down the street and engage with the neighbors. Okay. It's amazing what you'll learn. And I tell people, if you're scared to walk the street, you probably shouldn't invest there. So with that being a premise, you know, I take these very organic methods to learning and understanding an area. Once you, you know, in Houston, you know, I'm from the South. So you walk down the street, people gonna wave at you, talk, you know, they probably drinking a beverage or, you know, want some water or whatever. And before you know it, an hour or two stood there, you know, you talking and just learning. And so in that process, just applying that to real estate, that helped me kind of figure out more than what I thought I knew exactly what these people want. And so bringing that back down to uh, finding lots and things of that nature. So with an understanding of what people desire in this area and what needs have gone unmet in these areas, you know, finding a lot and, when you find a lot, the beauty of find so there's two there's two variables. Number one, to go from finding a lot to building something is a huge leap, and it's not something that the average person is going to want to undertake. So I want to make sure that that's clear. 
I'll, I hate to say it like this, but you're kind of a weirdo to find a piece of land and say, let me imagine something and let me go put it on paper and find all these pieces to bring it to pass. Mm -hmm. So this is not an easy undertaking and it's something that you really got to be focused to do. That being said, there's no shortage of opportunities in our communities and so many other opportunities. So for us, what we do is we're looking for lots. But one of the things I also look for is I look for properties that I look for a small house on an oversized lot, okay. on double or triple lots. Because now, uh, because I understand finance, see what I know, if I go find a vacant lot, I nine times out of 10 got to pay cash for it or a huge portion of the purchase price. However, if I go find a house on a 9,000 square foot lot, so that means I might have one or two additional lots. Mm -hmm. It's easy for me to finance that property. Why? Because there's a structure in place. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And if I negotiate a proper price, I can get the property and this additional land, then go in and engage someone who's a designer or architect, land planner, and they can figure out, okay, we can subdivide off this house and you can put two, three duplexes or two, three single family houses, things of that nature. So because I came in understanding finance, rather than just going buying lots right out the gate one of my niches was i'm gonna go find a house that actually has additional land or space to build on okay renovate the house now i got the land for free and maybe i do a duplex or a single family home or some greater use of that space so i'm not a buying finding land is great but in many cases many people will be better served going finding Let's just say in Houston, the average lot is 50 by 100. That's 5,000 square feet. Why not go find a house on 10,000 square feet where now you got a house on 5,000 of the square feet, but you also got this other land that's unencumbered. And now it's easier to leverage because, you know, and there's so many other variables there. So just a little nuance to just going out and finding a piece of land. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. Something I never would have thought. Yeah, just... Um, yeah, because that lot you're gonna have to pay cash if you can find the house, finance the house, and then uh, do what you do what you need to to do with it there. Um, so once you find that that oversized lot, um, you buy the home cash uh, or not cash? Sorry, you finance the home. At that point, are you? Um, now I'm, I'm just thinking for me if I was to try to do this process, sure. you're you're knocking down the home and then building some on top of it, or how how are you rezoning sure. the? the I can give lot you a contemporary over? example. So we have a property that we closed on a week ago. It's $95,000. It's a house on a 3,000 square foot lot that came with an additional lot that's 30 by 100. Okay. Now, the beauty for us is this house by itself on one lot on minus the additional lot is worth the 95,000. Okay. But from a just, let's say that's not the case, but just from a lending perspective, it's easy for us to go get a hard money loan or a construction loan, FHA 203K renovation, uh, Fannie Mae home style renovation, it's easy to finance it because there's an existing structure. So we now have a free lot. So we go and remodel that existing structure. I'm not a fan of tearing down uh, okay. historic properties in the hood. So our mantra is we don't tear down houses in the hood. We're going to tear off everything about the house that's bad and we're going to redesign it to fit today's uh, needs for our, you know, the discerning buyer or renter or whatever the case may be. So we're going to take that existing Ragley house, make it dope, make it amazing. And while we're doing that, we're going to work on the plans to build something new construction on the lot that's adjacent to it. Okay. Uh, so that's one of the nuances that we do. Oh, okay. Um, and can you talk about the, the financing piece? Because that's some part I'm always kind of curious about when you're building a, a new home or kind of maybe doing what you're doing, tearing it down to the, the studs and kind of rebuilding sure. it from there. Like, um, how, how, how does the financing typically work for your buyers? Because typically, like, you know, if you go to a Chase or Wells Fargo, they're not going to finance um, well, typically sir. a smaller um, custom home builder like, like you, I would assume. Well, you know, fortunately to that case, you know, we built, I built my first house in 05. So I have a pretty decent track record in, in that regard. Okay. But let's say that, you know, you don't have access to someone that, that has that, you know, the, the first barrel variable to financing, which is why I started with a house on an oversized lot is because it's easy to find hard money lenders that will lend on this deal. Okay. Because they can recognize via comps that houses like this are selling without the extra land. And when we got factoring this extra land, wow, you have a value add scenario. So that's the first point. Having a savvy 
a lender, uh, spe specifically a hard money lender is key. Now, okay. a hard money lender in and of itself isn't enough. You got to have someone who offers what we call agency financing or long-term 30-year mortgage, low interest rate financing. So that once you secure the property, you get it to the proper disposition, you can now bring in long-term financing. So the first step for us is figuring out, you know, again, because of my background, I'm only looking for certain types of properties okay. that make it easy to finance. There's, you know, if you got a ton of cash, it's easy to just go and buy a lot, pay cash for it, go get somebody to design, engineer, then build. Because you got a ton of cash. I didn't come into the game with a ton of cash. So I had to get creative. So that's mm -hmm. why I developed the idea. Wait a minute. Let me just go find old raggedy houses that have space for me to go and build new. I can finance these via hard money lenders. Most hard money lenders don't do new construction loans. Okay. So we go buy the house, get it to its proper disposition, whether we're going to flip it or rent it. And now we have this additional space or this additional lot that we then bring in a different lender. So we have a few phases here. Hard money lender allows us to buy it, redesign it, secure the house and get it to its proper disposition. Then we bring in a, we, depending on the lot structure, we uh, replat. So in the example I gave, we don't have to replat. Replat means you, so let's say you bought an acre and you want to turn an acre to 10 lots to build 10 houses on. The process to get that acre from one acre to 10 lots to one acre divided into 10 lots is called replatting. Well, in the context of a lot of projects we do, I look for projects that don't require a replat. So an example I gave, I'm buying a house for 95 grand that came with a vacant lot. We can build a duplex on a vacant lot without having to replat. Well, that's by design because I, ought to, because I inherently know I'm looking for that kind of deal. So when okay. I see it, I'm more than happy to pay the wholesaler what he, whatever he's asking because I understand how I can leverage this. So we renovate the house and refinance that. Then we bring in a construction lender that only does construction loan for small or niche builders. There's lenders that will uh, fund first-time builders. If you have, um, if you're a first-time builder developer, okay. but you pay a qualified builder to build for you, they'll fund the project. So there is a no shortage of lending uh, resources out there for you to execute that. So it's kind of done in two phases in the context of how we're talking about right now. Thank you. What's a qualified builder? Is that uh... so? A qualified builder is pretty much so. In the state of Texas, there's no license. Okay. So in areas like Texas, where it's you know it's unregulated, a qualified builder is going to be someone who has a track record who can show you current. Uh, projects as well as past projects and has the proper licensing. Um, in other cities, you're going to start with them being licensed because there's a license requirement. And then even if a person's licensed or not, you can't, there's nothing that, that uh, do, there's nothing that you can duplicate or that supersedes seeing their current projects and then seeing their previous projects. Oh, so okay. those fall into qualified builders because that's what the lender is going to want to see. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, and so, when someone's looking for um, uh, a, a builder, so am I builder and general contractor? Is that term interchangeable, or is that a totally different? Term? So, that's a tremendous question, and I appreciate you asking that. General contractor and builder can be interchangeable, okay? Because there's a few different levels you can build. For the average person they're not qualified to hire a general contractor to operate in the builder space. Okay. See, the thing with building is you're going to pay to the degree that you have knowledge about what's going on. So in mm -hmm. other words, the more educated and the more you know, the better structure and positioning you get. The less educated you are, the more you're going to pay and the more likely it is you're going to take get taken advantage of. So you take someone like myself. I have certain projects of ours that we manage and I pay a GC who has guys that work for him to manage the project. But that's because I understand everything he has to do. So okay. I know what I know what traps to check. I know what holes to check. I understand all the nuances to how, you know, I could end up paying more money uh, if I didn't understand some things. So, yes, you can pay a, a GC or a what we call a project manager to manage your project. As okay. a brand new builder or person going into developing space, I wouldn't recommend that. Okay. What I recommend is you go pay someone who's going to do what we call a cost plus contract, number one. Cost plus means, okay, you got a house, set of plans. 
the literal labor and materials to build that house or let's just say 150 grand. But for me to build and manage that process for you, I'm charging you 30 grand. So okay. now you're going to pay 180. 150 for all the stuff it takes to do it and 30 for me to manage this process. Now, when you have a cost plus cost plus contract, the first thing that benefits you is you know exactly what you're paying the builder. You know exactly what you're allocating for materials and labor for the construction of the project. This is powerful because now that gives you control versus if the builder just said, I can build it for 180. Mm -hmm. Well, does that mean you're getting Formica countertops or granite yeah. or quartz? Does that mean I'm getting um, MDF cabinets or whole wood cabinets? You don't know because it's an ambiguous number. Whereas if it's labor versus materials and costs, now you're going to see the line item for the cabinets and maybe they're 3,500. Well, you may elect to spend 4,000 there because you're going to save you know, that that th you may save that additional money on tile because you're going to pick a lower price tile, so on and so forth. So when it comes to engaging the builder and whether a, a GC versus a builder are synonymous, yes, they are. But the point that a person wants to understand is how you engage with those people and how they charge you for their services. And based on that, you being able to make a decision as to what level of service do you want or need for your project, and then you can engage the right person. Okay, pre appreciate that. Thank you. So, when someone's looking, let's say builder, when someone's looking for a a new, um, like a builder to build their uh, their home, like what are some things they should look for to make sure, hey, this, um, to feel comfortable with uh, moving forward with this. Um, so, one of the things I found, you know, the first thing I always, one of the first things I always say is. When it comes to a process like this, you know, and there obviously there will be people that see this that aren't in relationships or married or whatever the case may be. But when you're engaging with a contractor to do these type of projects, especially a new build, it's a it's a business marriage. In other sure. words, you're going to be engaged in a highly personal relationship where you're going to have to communicate and really deal with how this person is as a person. Because this isn't a two, three week transaction. This is six, eight, eight, nine, 10, 12 months, 18 yeah. months. So for you to have the lens of what's cheapest or some of these other lenses doesn't serve the needs of what you're trying to do. So the first thing that you need to pay attention to when you're looking to hire someone is relationship, relationship wise, forget the math and the numbers. Can't is this a person I want to talk to every single week? <laughs> you know, when most people, you know, if you go and start doing a little bit of research, you'd be amazed at how many people start a new construction project. And like if it's a couple, they break up or they get a divorce or there's financial calamity associated, not with the success of the project, but the process. Because okay. there's what we call decision fatigue. If you're building a house, now you got to make a whole bunch of decisions or you got to pay somebody to make a whole bunch of decisions. And if you don't understand there are all these decisions to be made, you're not going to be so apt to pay somebody, which means you're going to have to make them, which means you're going to get into decision fatigue, which means you're going to be stressed. This process is going to get horrible. You're going to have change orders, which means you're going to make life harder for the builder, project manager, whomever's building the project, which means now it costs more. So like, there's a lot of minutia that comes into building a house. The benefit to you going and buying a house from a home builder is they've done all the thinking. Yeah. When you say, hey, you know what? I'm finna call Dave and have him do me a construction loan and build a house. What you're embracing, and you're embracing that for a reason. You either want a specific experience in your house and or you're trying to capture a huge chunk of equity. Generally, it's a combination of both. What you got to understand is the exchange for you to get those things are all the decisions that you have to make that normally the home builder would make for you. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, and so how do you make sure, like a, you mentioned like, you know, it could be anywhere from like eight, six, eight to 12 months. Like what are some things as a homeowner um, I should look at to make sure that uh, my builder is on schedule? I know life stuff happens, sure. material shortage and all that, but how can you, um, you know, being, completely new to this be like hey i know something's not right or hey this is taking longer than expected for a reason sure so this is what i i recommend to people going into the building space number one pay a third-party inspector that you're gonna pay they're gonna it's gonna cost you roughly 175 to 250 dollars per inspection for them to show up but 
um, pay for what we call period inspection. So when the foundation gets done, there's a he comes out. When the framing gets done, he comes out. When we start putting up sheetrock and all the fixtures, he comes out. So he's going to come out in generally four to five different phases of the house. That's one of the when the builder understands there is some level of accountability outside of the city, because what most people think is, oh, OK, well, I got the city inspection. The city inspects for code. They don't inspect for quality. Gotcha. A lot of people don't get that. They don't expect for quality. You know, they're looking for code. Does it meet the code? If it meet the code, then it'll go. But that doesn't mean it's quality. Sure. So that's point one. Um, so having an additional layer of oversight that's an experienced eye is very, very critical to you getting a better experience um, in your, you know, new construction process. Um, and then number two, you know, most uh, when you're getting a home built by someone, they'll give you some sort of schedule. And so the first thing you want to understand or do is make sure it's a reasonable schedule. Um, reasonable in the sense of most houses, you know, we don't build really large homes. We built a few large ones, but most of our houses are 1,600 living square feet, 1,600 uh, square feet or less. And generally, these are houses that can get built in, you know, 90 to 120 days if it's just basic brand new construction sometimes you know you know we have a case right now on a property where it took us 90 days to pour the foundation so mm -hmm. obviously and it's in this threshold we're talking about so obviously it exceeds that time frame so there will be certain you know special situations but all things being general any good builder is going to give you a schedule based on what they've projected out and then you as a client um one of the indirect things you could do is engage an inspector because that helps the builder see that there's some yeah. educated eyes outside of this client, and so I kind of need to do stuff right. Okay, okay, that makes that makes makes a lot a lot of sense. Um, so what are some things that that actually, um, and I don't mean necessarily from you know building a home from scratch, but what are some things that actually add value to homes? You know, folks will say, "Hey, I'm getting uh, a pool put in, or getting the uh, the kitchen redone." And they they spend forty thousand dollars. And they expect the home value to go up forty thousand dollars. <laughs> like, what are the things that actually add value um, to a home? If somebody's looking for like maybe a renovation or I don't know, flipping homes or sure. something like that. Yeah, you know, obvious. You know, updated kitchens and bath. You can never go wrong in any property with really nice kitchens and bathrooms. On this point, what I can say that I think a lot of people discount is a lot of us discount the value of a really good designer or interior decorator or interior designer. You know, most good ones come at a cost, you know, so if you had a designer, someone uh, similar to myself, or just an interior decorator, you know, like uh, very rarely does Houston Vintage Homes as a company take on renovation projects for retail buyers. But when we do, we stipulate they have an interior designer. Why? Because you're going to pay this person to go to these stores with you and help you narrow down your choices. You didn't ask this question, but let me give you, let me answer in this particular manner. The biggest issue people have, or one of the largest issues I see when people are building a house is it's one thing, to, there's no shortage of people who build a house that's for them specifically uh -huh. and it works for them. It's another thing for you to build a house that is, that will work for you, but that will also appreciate and if you ever sell it, it's going to mm -hmm. appreciate well and earn your tremendous return. What a lot of people do that build their own homes, they get so fixated on themselves that they lose sight of what's functional for the mass market. And when you, and, and when you engage a designer and competent professionals, they're going to help you balance what you think you've got to have versus what you what what makes sense to have and what's more pragmatic so that if you if your needs ever change mm -hmm. you have to sell this house you can sell it versus if you do an all black kitchen with black floors black mm -hmm. cabinets black granite you know black countertops and this that and the third that no one else can can relate to because you're in a, a community that's a traditional or more classical community you're going to have issues there versus you could build that same thing and put it in an infill gentrifying area and it just blow for the next 10 years. So having competent professionals on your team that are going to help guide your actions is very, very key. And then just understanding that, you know, most of us discount how soon we're going to be out of a house that we build. Okay. And what you'll find is most people that build a house, 
after they've done it their first time, they figure out all the stuff they do differently. So generally speaking, if you do it right, you're not going to be in that house long because you're going to want to go and do it again, utilizing all the lessons and everything you learned from the previous one. So okay. it's important to, you know, kind of design with the bigger market in place. Okay. Appreciate that. Th thank you. Um, and so, you know, one thing they say about, not they say about, one thing that's true about real estate is that, you know, um, you know, you can't really, you can't change your location. You know, you have that, that lot, that lot is that lot. Um, and so what are some things that you typically look for in like a neighborhood or, or something where it's like, Hey, um, I, I know, I know this neighborhood is going to be worth more like in the future or some things location wise sure. you look for when, when purchasing a, a, a lot. Sure. So one, the, if I were to give it to you in a sentence, I call it follow the smart money. All right. You know, and the smart money people say, well, hi, I know it's smart. If they got more commas and zeros in front of the decimal point than, than you nine times out of 10, they're All smarter. Right. Point number one. So let me, let me drive down on that a little bit. So what you want to do is look at what is, the city and what is uh, public and what are private investors doing in that area. So when you're following smart money, if you see like in my old neighborhood, all of a sudden in, in the bloody nickel, I'm from fifth ward. They call this area the bloody nickel. Well, all of a sudden there's this company, Midway company is one of the largest developers in the nation bought a piece of land. And in that land, they're building a golf course. There's no golf course in the entire space of inner city Houston except for one that's prop that's owned by the city. Now, all of a sudden, there's a second one. Mm -hmm. That's a game changer. That's yeah. a catalyst. So what I always tell people that are building a house, always look for the catalyst. The catalyst is somebody with hundreds of millions of dollars that are doing something in an area that you're interested in that now, because they're doing that, it's going to change everything else around it. So always look for a catalyst. That's the easy thing to do. Something else that, you know, an exercise I do whenever I travel to a city I hadn't been to in a while or I'm wanting to learn is I'll travel to a city, land, get in my car, drive down, drive to downtown. Then I drive all around north, south, east and west or downtown, paying attention to what areas already look nice. And I'm looking for the worst area closest to downtown. All right. And then I find where do I see them doing where are the streets torn up because they're putting new infrastructure in? Where are they putting new sidewalks, parks, and things of that nature in the worst areas of town? When I find that area, I now know where, if I'm brand new to that city, where I want to invest and play because I've already identified the nicest areas. There's no money to be made there. There's no opportunity there because it's already a no-brainer. Becky's already walking her dog. Everybody's already chilling out there. There's beer gardens there. I want to go to the worst part and look for these civic improvements where they're fixing the streets, they're doing parks, you know, you're seeing real eclectic, weird looking houses because that's the next hot area. If I were to bring you to where I, or my neighborhood that I keep referencing in this podcast, we could go back several years and I could show you what all these things I'm talking about were happening long before it became the hot area. And we can duplicate the same conversation in Chicago when they tore down Cabrini Greens or, you know, if we go to Baltimore, if we go to, you know, just different parts of the country, you know, they're in Dallas. You know, I remember when Deep Ellum wasn't like it is now. Okay. You know what I'm saying? I can remember when no one wanted to, you know, we was talking about the South Dallas drop. Now South Dallas is some really cool development happening in that area. Yeah. I can remember in Bishop Arts District where people weren't so artistic. <laughs> now you know what i'm saying the and so there are reasons why these things have happened and if you look at some of these things we're talking about over the last five to seven years they've kind of serendipitously led up to it so when you look at let me add one other thing if you're looking to build a house or develop become a builder developer i always tell people go down and meet with your local plan department and get an understanding of what the city's going to do. This stuff isn't rocket science. Contrary to popular belief, it's not hidden. Most of the stuff that's going to happen in most cities is public knowledge. Okay. And they will gladly share the information with you because most cities want to grow and flourish. So they're more than happy to share with you what they're planning to do in certain areas. And so um, so those are a couple of variables. I'm kind of rambling here. I apologize. Oh, no, but no, it's all good. It's really add as much context and value as I can as it relates to this. Okay. For, 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 no, I appreciate that. That Thank you. Um, and so when, when you're, you're going into, you know, a new neighborhood uh, year, um, so I say this, when people see new homes in an older neighborhood, they all automatically say, oh, 
gentrification, folks are being run out of the neighborhood. Let's um, talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So, how, what what are your thoughts on that? Like, how do you go about pricing? Well, I guess people are coming to you with projects, but uh, I guess well, let's what, talk what about are your thoughts for a on second. Let me ask you this. So, right. So, someone see you take a vacant lot, yeah, and turn it into a really nice house, and they scream gentrification. First thing is gentrification is a bad thing, in my opinion. Now, we all get the ability to give meaning to things based on, you know, what are our own personal beliefs are. But I'm not anti-gentrification because what I understand is in these same areas, many people will talk about how there's a lack of leadership. There's lack of, you know, police patrolling. The schools aren't good. The sidewalks don't look great. The parks don't look great. But they never connect the fact that your tax dollars are what pay for this. So the more vacant tax delinquent lots that are in an area, the more of all these issues that you're talking about, you want to have changed. There's not funding to provide it. So uh, area that's being gentrified, the first thing I like to establish is there's a, when we're talking about urban or hood area, it's a reason why it's the hood. Uh Like I could be mad at all the development that's coming to neighborhoods like mine and so many other ones, but like I can also, we can also have a conversation about how many people I know that I grew up with and many of us could, who lost their lives on these very same streets. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason, there's an environment that created that. So first thing we got to do is be honest about what our true issues are. Our issues aren't gentrification. Our issues are displacement. Displacement is when, okay, for instance, my wife and I looked at a, a multifamily property in an area we have an affinity for. And the reason we didn't buy it is because the majority of the tenants had been there somewhere between 10 to 27 years. Okay. And in order for us to buy it at what they wanted, we would have literally had to kick them all out because they were paying such cheap rent that there's no way the new buyer could buy it and keep them in. Like you had to kick them out and double or triple the rent. That's displacement. Now mm-hmm. we can get into whether the current landlord is wrong or right or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. I can't be mad at a man that didn't raise rents over the last 10, 15, 20 years to look out for the people that rent his houses. Because mm-hmm. when he got the properties, it was so cheap that he was still making money. I can't be mad at him for that. But the reality of the matter and where we are is a lot of times we're fighting the very thing that we desire. On one end, you scream gentrification. Then on the next sentence, you say, well, there's no you know, we'll have enough police uh, patrolling. We'll have enough uh, restaurants. We'll have enough, uh, um, you know, places to go and buy food. Yeah. Not understanding that you only get these things when you have a certain number of households within a given area. So when it comes to gentrification, our issue isn't gentrification, in my opinion. Our issue is displacement, number one. Our issue is not enough of us own or control real estate in our community so that we can have something more than just an opinion. One of my mantras last year, and it's my mantra this year, is own something more than an opinion. Everybody got an opinion <laughs> of what's happening in the community. I don't want to hear your opinion. I want to see it with my eyes. Show me where you felt this way about something, and then you went out and did something to it. Show me where you bought a house, and you could have rented out for 1500 but you rented out for 1300 on Section 8. Show me where you and somebody put some capital together and developed the affordable housing community, and you could have did a bill to rent and sold it to a large developer, but instead you did X, Y, Z. If you're not showing me your opinion, I'll still hear it, but I don't put a lot of validity into it. So when it comes to gentrification, I think most of us don't really understand what gentrification truly is. Gentrification means making an area nicer. And most of us can agree our communities need some more niceness. They need more better. They need more creative ideas and things of that nature. So, um, so you know, I could go on and on about that. That's a topic that's close to my heart. But, um, you know, I just think that as culturally, you know, we have to put ourselves in a position that it's okay. We're at the awareness of point. We're at the awareness awareness level where we are aware of what's going on. Now it's time to mobilize and, you know, put uh, our monies behind some of these things that we feel so passionately about.
Okay, I like that own more than an opinion. See if you got to see copyright it, man. You got to copyright trademark that. We all got an opinion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, just send me a little something off of it. Don't do it like a rapper. You know what I'm saying? But nah, man. You know, we got to own something more than an opinion. Like, real talk. Everybody got an opinion about what's happening in the hood. But my question is, how many have you bought a house in the hood? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, see, here's my one of my mantras about the neighborhoods. So many of us can talk about how much prices have gone up, but all I'm saying is, okay, great. That's cool. They have gone up, but Fat Joe told us best. Yesterday's price is not, you know, that's not today's price. (laughs) So we got to stop looking at what the price was five or 10 years ago and pay today's price and make it better. Yeah. That's what we got to do. Gotcha. Thank you. Yeah, that was a yeah, that was a great great answer to that 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 question there. Um, so um, appreciate appreciate your time. We're going to kind of wrap wrap it up. Uh, things now. I think we're going for maybe fifty minutes almost. Um, so the the last question I always ask folks is uh, um, so you, you have a million dollars, you have one week to spend it on real estate or real estate a real estate adjacent item. Um, you got to spend all a million dollars or you don't get it for some reason. What what are you using the money for? Oh, that's easy, bro. That's easy. All right. You know, so allow me to give just a little bit of backstory because I think it's important for anyone that would hear this. I believe in studying and mastering an area to the degree that somebody can send you an address and you can look at the property on Google Maps and know if you want to buy it based on them telling you what they want for it. You don't have to walk it. You don't have to see it. You don't have to get inspected. No, you can tell them unequivocally, yes, I'll buy it, or no, I'm not interested, not even having seen it. So with that as a backdrop, you gave me a million, bro, it's light work. I'm going to take that million, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take 650 grand, and I'm going to go and buy lots in all the areas, lots. And when I say a lot, it might be a vacant lot, or it might be a a little raggedy house that most people think is a teardown. Um, um, on it, and I'm gonna buy a ton. I'm gonna buy six hundred fifty thousand dollars worth. I'm gonna take the other three hundred and fifty. I'm gonna take fifty of the three fifty and get all the houses designed. Then we're gonna take the three hundred and I'm gonna build one or two at a time, and it's game over. And that million will turn into five in the next three years. Okay, it's almost like I gave you that question beforehand. I, I did not, but people usually hesitate to answer that. Yeah, nah, nah. Hey, listen. Listen, I've rehearsed that conversation just because, you know, I went into some meetings, man. I've gone into some meetings and, you know, I'm thinking I just need to raise this little small amount of capital. And, you know, they're asking questions about what would you do with five or 10 million? So please, a million capital. Nah, that's light work. Okay, cool, cool. Appreciate it. So where where can the uh, the good folks um, find you at? Sure, man. The best way to find me, man, is uh, on Instagram, Houston Vintage Homes. Uh, on um, Twitter, I'm on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter as well. The Urban CEO, Tom McDaniel, and um, those are the two places I hang out the most. Um, thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I'm glad we finally were able to connect and and get this done. And hopefully, we create a little bit of value for your market. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Thank you. So, um, uh, that that's it, folks. Once again, thank you for your time. And uh, there is no outro to this podcast, so it is over. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up.